Good morning. Please stand. Today we will be reading from Mark chapter 13, uh, verses 32 through 37. That can be found on page 496 in the blue Bibles that are in the back of the seats. And for anyone who may not have one, um, those are for you to keep. So, hear the word of the Lord. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thus says God's word. Pray with me again, would you? Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the promises of God. I thank you for the the majestic mysteries of the word of God. Those that have been revealed in Christ, I thank you for that. And God, I just want to, um, as we begin our our final little pass through Mark 13, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of what you did in the incarnation of Christ, and that we would be stirred to an urgency, to a watchfulness, to a vigilance, God. And so, Lord, we, we just ask all this. We ask that you would do this work in us by a, a, a direct... Uh, uh, God, just intervention of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, just prepare me to be able to bring the word in a way that brings joy and pleasure to you, that I would be faithful to what you have written, and God, not uh, pollute this with my own wayward heart and my own, uh, you know, just thoughts and opinions, God. So I thank you for that. ask you to bless us in the hearing and the application of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, So we took a break, obviously, from our study in Mark 13, which we started about six weeks ago. Um, We took a break for Resurrection Sunday last week. It was great to celebrate that with you. But we're concluding today our study of Mark 13. And um, if you remember the context of this entire chapter, the case that I've tried to make is that the context of this entire chapter is Jesus' prediction from his place on the Mount of Olives of the destruction of the temple. Uh, the destruction of the temple as well as the fall of Jerusalem. And all this, as you'll recall, took place in AD 70. He gave remarkably precise, predictive signs of this coming event. And all of these things took place within one generation, roughly 37 years after he had said these words, which was within the time frame that he had had stated. Now, this final passage of Mark 13 deals even more specifically with the timing of these fulfillments. Jesus had promised that all of these things would be fulfilled within one generation. Uh, and th- they would occur before that 
generation living at the time would have passed away. But now he narrows the focus. He says, uh, but of that day and that hour, uh, and, and when he speaks of that day and that hour, he either declines to reveal or does not know the exact moment when the fulfillment of these things will be. Now, our first task, we have two tasks this morning. Our first task is to explore exactly what he means when he says, no one knows, not even the Son. And we'll try to remove some of the difficulties you may already be seeing with that statement from the lips of Jesus. But there's a second challenge that we have in this text as well. I have, as I said, tried, some of you may agree, some of you may not agree, but I have tried as best as I can to present to you my position that that Mark 13 only speaks of things that have been fulfilled in actual human history at this point in human history. And so we have to determine for us in these last few verses, is there any application for us, any application whatsoever in Jesus' call for vigilance, for sobriety? What does he mean when he says, what I say to you, disciples, I say to all, stay awake. What is he talking about there? Now this passage, let me just warn you going in, you're like, after the last five weeks, nothing would surprise us. But this passage is fraught with peril if we don't wrestle with it to understand the meaning of this text. Because if we don't do that, we might potentially come to conclusions about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ that are absolutely foreign to Scripture. In other words, we can come to a different conclusion than what Scripture uh, absolutely presents about those very important doctrinal truths. We might also just dismiss the call to watchfulness that's demanded by Christ if we're too focused on the A.D. 70 Fulfillment, which I'm still defending, but if if that if we get overly focused on that, we'll miss this the 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 deeper meaning of this passage and say, well, it didn't really have any application to me because everything happened in eighty seventy. So, when interpreting scripture, this is the first rule we're going to apply today. When we're interpreting scripture, it's important that we don't apply a meaning to one verse that contradicts the clear teaching of the remainder of divine revelation. Amen. In other words, if you have one scripture versus 50 scriptures, you ought to rethink the conclusions that you're making off the one scripture. Because there's no disharmony in the word of God, but sometimes you have to work to see how this all fits together. And if we do this, if we, if we take one passage and, and it causes us to ignore everything else the Bible teaches, then we can create contradictions in scripture where none exist. That sounds dangerous, doesn't it? So it's also important for us to discover how the meaning of every text of the scripture applies to the readers in every age. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's a, you know, we, you've all heard uh, people talk about you're not David, and I totally agree with that. But what I'm saying is that there are there are ways that passages that have been historically fulfilled that that have you know typology of Christ. There are ways that that they apply to us, and we need to we need to search out as believers the application. Um, All passages contain principles. They contain warnings. They contain encouragements. They contain promises that we have to be willing to see if we can appropriate for ourselves. So, 
All that said, those are kind of the ground rules. Let's dive into the text. Jesus says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father, but only the Father. Um, now, a, a few weeks ago, I had a discussion with somebody, and they were saying, well, listen, there's a, there's a, a, the way you're teaching Mark 13, there's a major contradiction in this passage. I said, well, what is it? Show it to me. He says, you're saying that Jesus said he would come back within one generation. They, they, they opted for a, a position of all this being very futuristic, and they said, you said Jesus would come back with it, or that the, the, all these things would be fulfilled within one generation, but Jesus says here, no one knows the day or the hour. So if Jesus said this thing, this contradicts this thing. I said, no. I said, Jesus said, within a 40-year time frame, the events would take place. And then he says, but if you want me to get more specific than that, no one knows the day or the hour. No one can say at Thursday afternoon at 7, 18 p.m., these things are going to happen. He was saying that, that, that this, is, this is what we know. We know this is going to happen in one generation, and so be watchful. The central theme in this verse is a limitation of knowledge. The disciples want Jesus to narrow down the timing of the catastrophes that he's predicted, and he simply responds to them, no one knows. No one knows. And while he maintains it'll be within one generation, he declares that no one knows the day or the hour. And he speaks, when he says this statement, he speaks of three different categories of, of types of people that have no knowledge when these things will take place. The first category of those who do not know when these things are take, will take place includes all of humanity, including preachers. Including theologians, including prophets, including sages. Now that's really important to know. Because if you walk right now, you leave here, go right into the, your nearest Christian bookstore, and you, you look over the books about the end times, many of them are going to contain prognostications of so-called ends of the, or signs of the times. And so what the authors do in these books that have been around for generations, they take articles of current events and they try to connect dots to biblical prophecies to persuade you that Christ's coming is just around the corner. And you better pay attention or you're going to be left behind. And many of them will take Signs from passages like Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, and they'll use them as specific warnings of the, of, you know, the, the, the imminent return of Christ's imminence. But the context has already shown us that Jesus was speaking of a specific historical event, which was the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And he, he had predetermined a judgment for that city, that system. And that event in our time has already come and gone. So it makes no sense to take uh, portions of this passage and point to things that happened. I have a, a, a guy I knew years and years ago, and like many of you, we're friends on Facebook. I haven't talked to him face to face for probably 25 years. We're friends on Facebook. And every single time anywhere in the world there's an earthquake, he panics. Jesus said there'd be earthquakes. Here's an earthquake. You know, but can I let you in on a little secret? There have been earthquakes from the dawn of time till the end of time. That Jesus was talking about a specific concentration of earthquakes that would happen right before this AD 70 event. Now, 
even though this is true, that Jesus said no one will know and, and people have written their predictions down, these co- predictions still continue. It's like a faucet that no one can turn off, like a fire hose. A Wikipedia page that you should really look at titled List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. I can't get that word out today. It lists almost 200 predictions uh, of the end of the world that have been made since the first century. Do you know what these, all of these predictions, no matter who made them, no matter what religion they came from, do you know what the one thing is that they have in common? Every one of them failed. 200, 200 predictions. Everyone said, I've nailed this down. I've got the science correct. And, and uh, I figured out the secret messages and unlocked the hidden verses of Scripture. Whatever. And they say, we figured it out. And every single one has failed. Now, this list contains the name, the names of notable nutcases, notable false teachers, but it also, this is the problem, it also contains um, names of revered leaders, guys like Martin Luther, guys like the Puritan Cotton Mather, guys like John Wesley and more recently Chuck Smith, but all of these failures would have been avoided by simply hearing and believing the words of the Savior who said Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Saves you a lot of trouble. Would have saved, saved, you know, at one time in my life, it would have saved me hundreds of dollars in books that I bought. Next, Jesus says that that same limitation of knowledge has actually been imposed on the very angels who gaze upon the face of God. They don't know. Those holy first-hand witnesses of all of the acts of God throughout eternity were kept in the dark about the timing of God's final judgment on the Jewish nation and their temple worship. Why are, do you, why are we not told why they weren't briefed on God's timing? We don't know. But what we do know, it's reason enough for us to know that it was not God's good pleasure to inform them of his plan. So they didn't know. But also, what I want to point out about the angels not knowing is this should humble us. If the very ministering spirits who worship around God's throne were not led into the mind of God on this point, what makes us so arrogant to think that we can unravel his secret mysteries like there's some kind of, you know, riddle? How, what, what is it with us? Now, Those two things can be pretty easy to understand. Men don't know it. Angels don't know it. It's the last statement that Jesus makes that if we think about it and think about it wrongly with the wrong hermeneutic, it can absolutely derail our our orthodoxy if we don't deeply consider what he means. See, when Jesus says that no one knows, he actually includes himself in that number. I'll be honest, show of hands, how many have ever been bothered by that statement? Anybody? Okay, there's a few of you. How on earth can Jesus not know anything? This has troubled a lot of people, and there's good reasons for it. First, we believe and teach, along with all Orthodox Christianity since the beginning of the church, that Jesus is truly God. 
If you agree, say amen. Okay. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is our kind of statement of doctrinal truths, says the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. Now listen to this. The same in substance and equal with Him. What are the implications of that statement, that doctrinal statement? There can be no differences allowed in either what Jesus and the Father can do by their equal power or what Jesus and the Father can know in the equality of their omniscience. Are you you agreeing with me so far? Okay. It's this equality of the persons of the Godhead that has led the people of God confessing ever since Moses' day, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One. One God, but three persons. Now, we confess, this is, a mis- this is the mystery of the Trinity. It can be expressed as true, we see biblical evidence for it, but none of us can fully comprehend this reality with our finite minds. So the London Baptist Confession also explains the unity that exists within the Trinity. Now listen to these words, our, our options for Jesus' statement are getting narrower and narrower. It says, this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons. The Father, the Word or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three have the same substance, the same substance, the same power, the same eternity. Each having the whole divine essence without the essence being divided. What that means is... God, the Father doesn't have a third of the essence, the Son doesn't have a third of the essence, and the Holy Spirit doesn't have a third of the essence. No, they all have all the essence. Though the three persons have the same substance, power, and eternity, by eternal decree, they have taken different roles in the redemption of this cosmos. The Father purposed our redemption. The Son, on the cross and through His empty tomb, achieved our redemption. And the Holy Spirit is the one filled with the grace of God who applies the redemptive work of Christ to believers. So, all that was set up to say that it it would seem that if there's anything, even the smallest, most insignificant information, not counting things like Jesus predicted, that the Father knows, that Jesus doesn't know, then we have to insist... If we're going to be consistent, we have to insist that Jesus isn't truly God as the scriptures declare and as the church has always believed. Anybody willing this morning because of the difficulty to go down that road? Anybody? No. No. We'll die on that hill. Jesus is truly God. Amen? At best, if, if, if we found some difference, at, at the very best, he'd be subordinate to God. He'd be like humans or angels. And the church already dealt with those heresies in the first couple of centuries of its, its, its existence. See, God is defined for us in the scriptures by his perfections. That's why we say that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's known in the Bible as the Almighty He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. While he's gathering with us this morning with the saints at Northridge Life Church in Lubbock, Texas, he is gathering with the saints in Bangladesh. Amen? He is also believed to be omniscient. Meaning that he knows everything. And if all that's true, what do we do with Jesus' statement? 
his insistence that he did not know the day or the hour of God's judgment on Jerusalem. Has the Christian church been wrong all along about who Jesus was in his equality with the Father? Well, the answer for us, thankfully, is found in understanding the nature of Christ's incarnation. His, the, this nature of what happened when he took on flesh and walked among us. Philippians 2.5, a very familiar scripture, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness, that's a really important word, the likeness of men. Now, we understand this mystery by remembering that Christ was truly God. We're not backing off that. But that he was also truly and perfectly human. Truly man. Once again, if I can do one more from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing together to produce a different or blended nature. What this is saying is that uh, Jesus' divine nature did not make him sort of godlike in his human human existence and his human nature did no nothing to demean the the divine nature that was in him are y'all staying with me everybody following me okay he wasn't a hybrid of god and man he was 100 percent man 100 percent god and and the the confession continues this person is truly god and truly man yet one christ the only mediator between God and humanity. That's how we, that's what all this means, that he was, he did this so that he could mediate between God and man. So, remember, the key issue is he's not 50% God, 50% man, he's 100% of both natures. In other words, he was perfectly God without any loss to his divine nature by the incarnation. But he was also perfectly man, subject to the weaknesses, the limitations, and all that involved is involved in humanity according to his human nature. And this is why in the Gospels we read very curious things. We read of him being tired. Can you imagine God being tired? We read of him sleeping. Psalm 121 tells us that that is clearly something God does not do. The Lord your God, he does not sleep nor slumber. That's what it says. It's, it's why we see him hungry at times and thirsty. It's how he was able to be killed. Though God is eternal and he's not threatened by anyone, the Son of God was put to death. So we shouldn't be surprised at all that the man Jesus Christ operated on earth with limited information. Why? Because that's a very human thing to do. Another show of hands. Raise your hand if in this room you are omniscient. I thought so. So it's a very human thing to operate with limited information. Though when Jesus says, I do not know the time, 
Everything that he knew about the destruction of the temple, who revealed that to him? It was his own divine nature revealing that to him. But in his human nature, he only revealed so, or he had only so much revealed to him. Luke says that as a boy, Jesus increased in wisdom. Now, if he came out of the womb, functioning in omniscience, how is that even possible? Now, remember, I'm talking about two distinct natures. God, uh, the divine nature of Christ from the moment of conception was was truly omniscient. But he he uh, became in the likeness of men, emptied himself. And so he had to increase in wisdom. If he'd operated in the fullness of his omniscience, he couldn't have ever in any sense been like us. But he was our federal head. He was our representative. He had to become like us. Hebrews 5.8 has something that people have also struggled with. It says, although he was a son, listen to this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is not suggesting at all that there was ever a moment that Jesus was disobedient. And he had to learn to go from disobedience to obedience. What it means is that he, like us, was faced from the moment of his life, the the moment of his earthly life began, he was faced with choices where he must choose what is righteous. And praise the Lord, praise the Lord that he always did so that he could save us. Amen. So experiencing hunger, experiencing thirst, experiencing weariness, experiencing even death, along with the limitation of knowledge, was what Paul means when he says he emptied himself. Though he was fully God, he never used his deity as a shortcut for his humanity. Instead, he drank the full cup of human experience Even taking on all of our temptation, the Bible says, yet without sin, and all of our guilt on the cross, though he was guilty of nothing. And because of this, we can't imagine that there is anything. Please listen to me. We cannot imagine, as true believers, that there is anything, anything, that Jesus Christ, glorified, having been exalted to the highest place by the Father, doesn't know. Amen? Jesus knows everything. He is omniscient. And you can take that to the bank. To imagine such a thing would be an act that would do injury to the fullness of the deity of Christ. Now, let's move on to our second challenge. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. In these last five verses of the passage, Jesus emphasizes urgency. He emphasizes watchfulness. The disciples' own limitation of knowledge as to the day and hour should inspire vigilance on their part. This is what Jesus is saying. They must not be taken by surprise by what is coming. Why? Because Jesus told them it's coming. He told them how to look for it, how to know it's right around the corner. Because we know that Jesus has been talking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem throughout Mark 13, we can be assured that this is what he was commanding the disciples to be on the lookout for. He was talking specifically about the thing, the signs that would precede that. After Jesus' predictions of clear signs, they have to be diligent to watch for the things he's promised. But we have to ask ourselves if this passage, because of that, has any bearing whatsoever on modern believers like you and I, since everything he prophesies in this passage has already come to pass. My question to you. 
Are we also, as the people of God, 20 centuries later, are we also expected by God to be watchful, to be diligent, to be sober, to be vigilant? And if we are, what exactly are we watching for? And what does it mean even to watch? To be on the alert. So Jesus gives us a parable. Verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. He commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Can you imagine being given a task, an authoritative supervisory task, by your boss, and have him walk in and sound find you sawing logs, snoring like a maniac? Can you imagine the embarrassment and the, uh, the, the, the consequences of that if you were to be found in that way? So Jesus speaks of the master of his house leaving his servants in charge. Now notice these things about his parable. There is work to be done in his absence. There's management to be seen to. The work of his house and the produce of his domain mustn't suffer while he's away. After Jesus ascended, he empowered the church to be his witnesses. Said the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he had sent, he empowered the church to be his witnesses. And what does this tell us? The Master has given us work to be done. Amen. There is work to be done. Christ's kingdom must expand. His worship must be maintained, and the harvest of the Master must be brought. And we got to ask ourselves, are we faithfully about the Father's business? Or are we sound asleep, sawing logs? Are we living like there's going to be no accounting when he returns? Are we spiritually asleep as his church in large sectors around the world is falling into moral disrepair? Unconcerned that the lost are slipping into hell by the hundreds and thousands and millions. The disciples had a limited time with this AD 70 prediction to accomplish the work Christ had given them. They had to do it before the fall of Jerusalem. Remember Jesus even spoke of this. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There was no time to wait. In the words of the Apostle Paul, they had to work while it was day. For the night was fast approaching. Now, listen to me carefully. Because I'm convinced, as a pastor, I'm convinced that most of us live most of our lives under a grand delusion. Doesn't matter if we're lost or saved, we live our lives under a grand delusion. Do you? Now, we're not living before 8070, but do you, sitting here in the seats at Northridge Life Church today, Do you have any greater assurance of time than those original disciples did? Do you? What's that, Jim? No. You have no assurance of time. Listen to me carefully and 
let it shake you up a little bit. Is there anyone here who can guarantee that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning? Can you even guarantee that you're going to arrive safely at home this afternoon? You cannot. You have no idea. If your life were snuffed out tonight, would you be ready to face your Creator, your Master, your Judge? Would you have anything to lay at His feet as the rewards of His suffering, a holy life, a sincere devotion, a passionate service? Now listen, this is America, and we do everything we can to avoid thinking about death. We invest millions, billions, trillions into the medical industry so we can get a few more months on the end of whatever lifetime we have. We hate thinking about death. But no matter how good your insurance is, no matter how great your health is right now, please consider that with every single beat of your heart, in your chest right now, you are one step closer to the appearance of the Master. One step closer. You just took five or six, seven, eight, nine steps while I was saying that. You're closer. There's no turning back. There's no way to make a U-turn. You're marching toward the day when the Master returns. He's coming. And I'm not necessarily right here even talking about the second coming, although I believe in that. What I can assure you is that you will be met at death's door by one demanding an accounting. What will you say? Will you go on just trying to ignore the reality of that? Or will you take whatever opportunity with great diligence to repair uh, you know, not not repair because we don't believe in that, but but to put your trust in Christ so that He can repair the breach between you and Him. That you, if you are a Christian and you've lived in a slothful Christianity, are you willing to say, "I need to come alive in my faith. I need to um, take the Word of God more seriously. I need to be obedient to His commands." I need to walk in the fear of the Lord. These are things to consider. Matthew 13, 37, the last verse in our passage today says, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It seems as if Jesus is clearly expanding this idea of sobriety and watchfulness beyond the disciples to the whole church with these words, What I say to you, I say to all. And if we're called to be vigilant, then how does the Christian stay watchful. Well, first, we're called to be watchful in prayer. The Bible says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Anybody discovered that to be true? The constitution of our hearts because of original sin is to be slothful in regard to the things of God. We must, however, rouse ourselves in prayer to avoid being rocked by the rocked to spiritual sleep by the desires of our flesh, by the desires of the culture. I remember in the 80s when I was growing up, there was a big, you know, what we called the satanic panic. There was devils under every rock, you know, that sort of thing. And um, one of the things that I 
realized during all that craziness was this. Did you know that you can have the guarantee that the devil will never launch a full-scale nuclear assault on you if a lullaby will do the trick? If he can just rock you to sleep, just get you to check out for a little while, you don't have to worry about his big attacks. You don't have to worry about cancer. You don't have to worry about, you know, relationship breakdown. All he wants you to do is sleep. Take your slumber. Second, we have to be watchful against, because of that, our enemy, the devil. This is what Peter says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, if we had gotten news this morning, if all your phones went off of the news alert from one of the local news channels and said, a lion is loose in the area of Milwaukee and 19th. Would you casually stroll out to your car this morning? Would you be checking Facebook while you're walking to your car? No. That news would cause you to be like this. You know, looking around and, and uh, you know, if you're particularly jumpy, every little sound would make you go. And, and Jesus, that's a funny scenario, but Jesus says that's exactly the kind of existence we all live. We have an adversary who is intent on destroying us, and he's out there. Often in our anti-supernatural, materialist world, we tend to minimize the raging of our adversary. But we're told here by Peter to be on the alert. And then the next verse will promise something wonderful. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to have knees knocking because our, our enemy is walking around like a lion. This is what we're told in the next verse. If we resist him... He has to flee from us. When we're standing in union with Christ, he cannot overcome us if we resist him. Third, you have to be vigilant in the pursuit of personal holiness and practical righteousness. Many Christians make a profession of faith in Christ without the spirit-empowered pursuit of holiness. But the Bible says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is not about works salvation. We talked about this yesterday at the men's meeting. This is not about works salvation. It's about obedience to Christ. There is no way to work your way into salvation, but if you're truly in salvation, if you're truly in Christ, Christ empowers you to delight in and follow and obey His Word. Amen? Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow for the springs of life. As the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual light through His Word, we have to submit our thoughts and our actions to His will through His sanctifying grace. This obedient response to the voice of God is the way that we assure ourselves of the reality of our relationship to Jesus. Therefore, we can't allow ourselves to become drowsy in the face of sin that is indwelling in us that so easily besets us. We must have a daily declaration of war against the things that are displeasing to God in us. And lastly... We, you and I, must be in perpetual readiness as we look forward to Christ's second coming. And that doesn't involve, you know, cataloging signs of the times and, you know, watching 19 hours of CNN so you can figure if Jesus is coming back Thursday or Saturday. You're not going to find it there. No one knows. And though this scripture in context deals with the events of AD 70, there's others in the Bible that call us to be in expectation of his glorious return at the end of time. 
One of my favorites, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Be on the lookout. Keep your eyes peeled. We're told that Salvation will be granted to those who are eagerly awaiting his return. How often do we even look for that day or consider that that day is a reality? The second coming of Christ is one of the glorious promises of Scripture. But it's going to be a time when the totality of creation, the totality of the created order will be restored and renewed without any stain of corruption, of sin, of defilement. This is our hope. His coming will usher in conditions that you and I cannot even fathom. There's not a painting you can make of it, not a movie you can make of it, not a book you can write about it that does it justice. Because you and I cannot even fathom an existence where everything, where there's no sin and no corruption because everything we've ever known has been tainted by sin. And all that comes with it, fear, anxiety, death. Yet we're told to be busy laboring for the master until the moment of his appearing, either at our death or at the end of everything. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, but according to his promise, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We can bank on it. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the call to be vigilant and diligent, sober, ready. God, we pray that you would help us even to uh, become more so, Lord. to, To be looking not just for some future event of the second coming, but for looking for you to sanctify us, looking for you to to war against the devil on our behalf, looking for you to to meet us in the hour of prayer, God. Don't let us be a sleepy church. Don't let us be a drowsy church. Don't let us be a, a snoozing church, God. Let us be a church awake and ready to obey you, to respond to you, to submit to you, to love you, to understand you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could have our communion helpers come forward and uh, prepare yourself to assist us. <clears throat> We're about to receive from the Lord's um, table. And, and I love this moment in our services where we renew our covenant with the Lord. I, I love the words that Paul has given us uh, to remember what Christ said at his own last supper. And um, I love that it says that... As often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have got this wonderful meal, this partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ to nourish us and to refresh us until that day when our faith becomes sight and we're united with Christ forever and ever. Not in, uh, not through a glass darkly, but then, Paul says, face to face. And so I'm going to invite you to all come and receive these elements and take them back to your seat and then we'll, we'll take them together as soon as, as soon as we get them. Paul gives us these familiar words from 
1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now, let's take just a moment and give thanks to the Lord for his glorious gift. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you have provided the perfect ransom, the perfect sacrifice to rescue us from the wrath of God, that you have been just in doling out punishment, but you put your punishment on your son so that you might also be the justifier of guilty sinners like us. And we thank you for that, God. Thank you. God, I pray that we would spend the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of our lifetimes, just blown away by that reality, God. Help us not to be drowsy, but to be wide awake, fully alert, as we ponder the blessings of your gospel. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. We are going to do, if you can be seated, and we're going to do one real quick thing. I, I know this has been a full service. We're actually one minute over time now. I appreciate you guys being gracious to us. I'm going to ask Zachary, where where'd you wind up? Zachary, come on up here. Um, this is Zachary, for those of you, I think everybody knows him. He is another son of mine, and um, he has, God has just been blessing him so much um, at the at the expense of his old man. So, <laughs> and what I mean by that is Zachary has just been flying up the ladder at his job, and he is moving with, he works for HEB, and they're moving him to Midland. <sighs> and so, we are, uh, I, we're losing a great faithful, hardworking, servant-hearted church member. We're also losing a deacon, and we're, uh, we're, but I am, you know, Ginger and I are, are having to wave goodbye to another son that's moving away from us, so it's kind of, we're glad he's in Midland. Jason's in Idaho. We'll take Midland over Idaho any day, but, uh, but uh, we're still going to miss him. This is his last Sunday with us, so I would like for you guys to all stand in preparation for the benediction, but before we do the benediction, would you guys just join us as, as Pastor Dave and I just pray a brief prayer over Zach? Father, we're thankful for Zach. We're so thankful for his years of faithful service at the church here as a deacon and in other roles as well. Lord, most of all, we're thankful for the work that we've seen happening in his life and his heart, um, that you have made him your own, that you have given him your Holy Spirit, and that he is growing in maturity and faith and perseverance, Lord. And we thank you for that work, Lord, and we trust that you will continue this work in him um, even as he begins this new journey, Lord. I thank you for the success that you've given him in his job, Um, and I I thank you um, that you have prepared the way for him to go to Midland, Lord, and we just trust that as he goes that you will provide for every single need that he has. Lord, we pray that you would provide him with good management to work with at his store, Um, We ask that you would provide for him financially. Lord, we ask that you would provide for him godly friends. Lord, and most of all, a a church family. 
that is faithful to the gospel and will be faithful to disciple him, Lord. Um, We entrust him to you as he goes, and we thank you that his life is in your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. God, I just thank you for Zachary and the joy I've had just uh, raising him and then getting to see him grow up into mature manhood. And, Lord, I just pray that you would just, um, even many of the things Pastor David prayed, that you would just pave his way with blessings, Lord, and that you would just uh, meet the desires of his heart, those desires that honor you, that you would just, uh, God, just prepare him to receive those things. God, I pray that, that any uh, desires he may have that are contrary to you, that you would, um, God, release him from those and that he would just uh, take great joy, great pleasure in being your servant and bringing your gospel to a whole new group of people and serving with a whole new group of people. And God, I, I pray that this would be just a time in his life of thriving and joy and fulfillment, and um, and but mostly just a, a time of abundant grace poured out on his life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you would place your hands in receiving position, our benediction for today is now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.